Have you ever noticed in life that it seems that some of the biggest mistakes we make don't come during times of trial or hardship, but during times of triumph? When things are going well, uh, when, when everything's rolling along as it should be, it seems at times we get complacent, we forget. It becomes easy to get caught off guard. We ride on all sorts of false securities, an optimistic view of life, of work and relationships, and it only takes one thing and it all goes to custard. Everything crumbles because we miss something. We, we start relying on ourselves and thinking that everything's great. Here we are, nothing to worry about. As we keep hearing God's word today, we'll see that it asks the question of us, have you missed something big in life? Have you let the circumstances of life and reality around you cloud the true reality? Uh, From the last few weeks, we've been looking through the the story of the Bible, through from the the creation of Adam and Eve, through the promises God made to Abraham, and we saw those, those promises Remember, these promises were kind of like the controlling trajectory of the whole Bible. And God had made this promise to Abraham that he would make him great. He would have many descendants. He'd make him into a great nation. And that he would take them into a promised land and they would have rest from their enemies around them. That God would be their God. And through his family, all nations on earth would be blessed. It's an amazing promise. And as you keep reading every chapter of the Bible, you see it in relation to that promise. You see, the authors keep referring back to that promise to Abraham and what he would do with his people. Last week, we saw Abraham's descendant, David, made king. He was the king that God chose, uh, the man that was after God's own heart. He was living in the land that God had promised to Abraham. A great nation were there. They were ruling. They had rest from their enemies. They were winning their battles. This nation was blessed in every way. Everything was sweet for David. It's the high point of Israel's history. And you've got to ask, is this it? Is this the moment when all of God's promises are being fulfilled? But we saw there was was more to come. We saw that God had given David a promise that a, a son would be born to him who would rule forever. Not just some temporary kingdom on earth, but a kingdom that lasts forever, a real kingdom a kingdom that the ruler, the reigner, the king would rule forever in. It looked like God's promises to Abraham were almost complete, almost delivered. If it wasn't through David, it would be through David's son Solomon as he built the temple and God was dwelling with his people in his place, living under God's rule. There's, there's no other time like it except the Garden of Eden, really, throughout the story of the Old Testament. It's a highlight. But then we see this passage. And what we notice is David is somewhere that he shouldn't be. He's somewhere that he shouldn't be. Chapter 2, uh, sorry, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel says this, verse 1. In the spring, when kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. As you first read that, it might not seem that there's much odd about that. But when you look closely, why wasn't the king leading his people in battle? When all Israel were out fighting their enemies, like David had been doing every time before, why was not David with his people? Why was he somewhere he shouldn't have been? Where was he? At home, on his couch, lounging around, resting on his laurels, if you want. This is the high point. Look at how well I've done. Look at the confidence that I have. 
David found himself somewhere he shouldn't have been. Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. Now, if you know where David's palace is in Israel, which I haven't been there, but I know people who have, they say it's raised up, not quite at the top of the hill, but overlooking lots of Jerusalem. You can see the terraced houses from the roof. You can kind of see all that's going on before him. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her. You get the picture here. He's bored. He's at the top of his game. Everything looks sweet. He's confident. He's rolling along in life. He's won the battles and he's resting on his laurels, on his couch, on his rooftop, taking in the world around. What's he doing on his roof? He's kind of flipping through the equivalent pages of Facebook, looking what people are doing in the world around him when all the men are away. What's he, what's he looking for? Old friends, familiar faces? When his line of sight focuses on Bathsheba, he doesn't know that's her name yet, he sees something that captures his eye. And again, he finds himself somewhere he shouldn't be. He is God's king, the one after God's own heart. He sees this woman and he inquires. You can almost hear the cogs ticking in his mind. He doesn't jump straight in, but he just takes one small step. I just want to find out a name. I've seen a picture. I just want to click on a name and see a little bit more about her history and where she's been. And you understand what's going on, right? While there's no button to click, there is a messenger to send. And what he does is sends his messenger to find out more. I just want to know what she's like, maybe what she looks like in a bit more detail. So verse 3, he sends the messenger and this is the response. And he reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now I love the way this messenger responds at this point. He doesn't describe her beauty or, or talk about who's at home. He describes her in relation to her relationships. He doesn't kind of point out all her features. He, he describes her relationally and says, she's someone's daughter and someone's wife. In other words, David, don't touch. She is someone's daughter and someone's wife. And isn't that true often of so many people on our screens in our world? She belongs to someone else. And we're told who Uriah the Hittite Uriah wasn't naturally a Jew. He was from the Hittites, who weren't Jews, but he was now working for the Jews. He had become a Jew. And not just any Jew, he was David's bodyguard in the kind of elite protector squad, looking after David, risking his life and limb for his king, who wasn't at war where he should have been, who, who was looking at his wife. And at this moment, like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, David found himself somewhere he shouldn't have been, doing something he shouldn't have done with someone he shouldn't have been near. Verse 4, David sent the messenger to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. At the top of his game the king that God chose, the one that was looking so good for God's people, whose son would rule the world forever, makes one choice that turns the rest of Israel's history to custard. One mistake, 
one era of judgment, like the Garden of Eden all over again. Eve saw, Eve took, Eve ate. David saw, he took, he slept. Some of the biggest mistakes in life come when we're at the top of our game. When we think we've got it all sorted, when we think it relies on us. It makes me wonder, where am I at in my life? Where are you at? Are you at a point where you feel like life is just cruising along, everything's fine? Is there a possibility that you aren't where you are supposed to be? That your mind isn't where your mind is supposed to be? That your heart isn't where your heart is supposed to be? Maybe for you, you don't go to bed when you should and you fill your eyes with screens and things you shouldn't. Someone else's daughter. Maybe you don't leave work when you should. You stay back and just... Hang around with that workmate, that colleague, that friend, just a little bit longer. Nothing serious. I just want to get to know them a bit more and spend life with them a little, you know, they're, they're a friend. Or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's God's people that you're afraid of, that you pull back from. And you, you don't go to church because you're maybe afraid, maybe feeling guilty, maybe just apathetic. And so we don't do what we should do. We don't follow through. Or maybe it's God's word. Maybe your head isn't in God's Word. You don't have much regard for this God of the Bible, or you do, but it's just not a priority. Are you somewhere you shouldn't be, amongst things you shouldn't be amongst? Well, the temptation to bring comfort and pleasure in ways God had not provided was huge for David, and it's huge for us. For him, wine and women, money, men, whatever it is, At this moment, the king that God chose, the one after God's own heart, the one through whom God's forever king would come and to whom God would bring every good pleasure, thinks he can achieve something greater than what God can provide on his own. And isn't that the heart of every sin that we have? Thinking that God won't provide it, so I need to get it outside of what he says, outside of him. We need to ask, is this us? Are there things going on in our life right now that we think we can get that God won't provide? We go outside the Word of God and His good pleasure and will. The irony is, if we think that we aren't tempted in the same way of David, if we sit here and go, no, there's there's probably nothing like that. I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm at the top of my game. We're in exactly the same position as David. And even more dangerous because we think that we are better than David, God's anointed, the one after God's own heart, the one whom God chose to lead his people. We should not think higher of ourselves. If David gave in, then so can we. Just like Adam and Eve at this point, in the garden, David has the same two options. To confess or cover up. And you know how it is, the guilt, the shame, the Damage to your reputation. Imagine you were the king of Israel, the king after God's own heart. What would you do if people found out what you'd done? The stakes are high. He could lose his job as king, his reputation, lose the favor of God. So David goes with plan B, cover up. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they hid. For the first time in history, now the one whom through God would bring blessing to the earth hides from his God. Bring Uriah back from battle. So he sends Uriah back. It's a good plan. 
get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba and then it's fine. Nothing will be known. No one will know. But Uriah, man, what a man. He comes back and he's like, my men are out on the field where you should be. I'm not going to sleep with my wife tonight. I'm going to sleep outside your front door on the ground. I can't do that to my men. You see the contrast of just what one little decision makes and does for David. So he doesn't do it. So David's like, come back again. We'll have some wine. We'll get drunk together. Maybe then when he's drunk, he'll go home and do what he could do, what any normal guy would probably do with his wife. But no, it's just not what happens. At this point, even a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David. That's the way sin works, isn't it? We're pushed to do our own thing and we just keep going. Get the guy drunk, then he'll do it. So David just goes, well, that's it. He sends a note to his commander to put Uriah on the front line of the battle. Go back to the battle and put Uriah right at the front so when the enemies come, he gets taken out first. And when they come, just pull back a little. And Uriah finds himself protecting his king and the country he has joined while his king is stabbing him in the back. And you know how he did it? David sent the note to his commander with Uriah. He's carrying his own death warrant, which he delivers like a dutiful servant to his commander on the field, which delivers his death and seals David's sin. You see what happens when you cover up sin? When we just think we can get away with it? We'll hide it, we'll put it in the dark, but the more we cover sin up, the more it grows. We've got to take steps and take more steps and take more steps to cover up and cover up and cover up. Nothing fertilizes sin more than darkness. Like mushrooms in the dark, sin grows and we cover them over. If only he'd stopped. If only he had confessed to his God there and then, Uriah would not be dead. Yes, wrong had been committed. But he covers up. And what's so weird is this, David was called God's anointed king. He's called the Messiah, Israel's deliverer. The Messiah messed up so seriously. So he, he wanted the ark of the Lord, God's commandments and God's presence in the city of David. He wanted the blessings of God with him in that city, but he didn't want them in his heart. Didn't want to let God's word change the way he lived. What was in the center of that ark that David wanted in his city? The Ten Commandments. What do they say? You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not proclaim false testimony against your neighbor. You you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The ark he wanted so close to be in his city never entered his heart. And so often I feel the same, don't you? We love God's blessing. We love knowing the God who has saved us and died for us, but we don't want to listen to the good way he's made for us to live. We think we know better. Now, this week I was in Hamilton at the, at the Equip Conference, and a few of us were in the, the base shopping center just chatting to people about their views on spirituality and who they think Jesus is. And um, we chatted to a couple um, there, a husband and wife, probably in their, in their 70s, uh, who like I was talking about spiritual things. I'm like, oh, we'd love to chat. Just sit down and have a chat with us. So we had a chat with them for a while, and um, lovely couple. And, and basically, I said, you know, do you have, you know, who do you think God is? And she's like, well, I, I pray to God. 
Uh, there's times that I shoot up a prayer and ask him for things and ask him to help me through life. And I say, well, who, who is he to you? Uh, you know, if you were to stand before God and he would say, why should I let you into my heaven? What, what would you say? And she said, well, look, I think I've done good things. I, I, um, she said, I give to charity. I serve in a soup kitchen. And then she said these words to me. She said, and if that's not good enough for God, then I don't mind. She's just happy to stand on what she thought rather than God's word. She wants his blessing without his word, without knowing the way to come to him and trust him. Just like David. Sees something he he can't have, but thinks he knows better than God. Just like us. No matter where we're at with life, no matter what you think of Jesus or God, we all make decisions to ignore him. To even say he doesn't exist, just think, look, I know what's best. I'll make the decisions about my life. And, you know, if I come before God and that's not good enough, well, so be it. It doesn't end well for David and it won't end well for us. If he is the God who provides life and we reject him, he has every right to take life away from us. That's what we're asking for. We hear the punishment that happens out of this. You hear the, the parable that Zach read so well. Nathan comes, says there's this man who's brought up this lovely little sheep. And David gets so angry. Who would do this to the poor man and take his sheep? He must die. It's you. Busted. See, there is nothing God does not see or hear. We can't cover up anything from him. It's so crazy to think that we can... Pull things away from the creator of the universe who sees all and knows all. Out of this, the, the son that's born to Bathsheba would die. And, and David's family line would have violence, would be split apart. Bathsheba does have another son after David marries her. That son is called Solomon. And Solomon, through him, builds a temple. And you think, wow, God has forgiven. What has gone on here? But just like his dad, Solomon is the same. He wants the Ark of the Covenant in the city of David, his father, around the palace of the, the temple of Jerusalem, of Israel. But he, he seeks after more women and more women and more women. Just listen to the way of Solomon takes on the kingship of his dad and the sorry story of Israel that, res, that resolves. Have a look at 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11, it's on the screen or flip it up in your Bible. King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian and Hittite women from the nations that the Lord had told the Israelites about, do not intermarry with them. And they must not intermarry with you because they will turn you away from me to their gods. Solomon was deeply attached to these women and loved them. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And unsurprisingly, they turned his heart away from the Lord. When Solomon was old, in verse 4, his wives seduced him to follow other gods. He was not completely devoted to Yahweh, his God. Uh, Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight and did not completely follow Yahweh. And so God punishes Solomon. And we see at this high point when things look so good, they go so bad. Verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He had commanded him about this so he would not follow other gods, but Solomon did not do what the Lord had commanded. 
Then the Lord said to Solomon, Since you have done this and did not keep my covenant and my statutes, which I commanded you, I will tear the kingdom away from you. Remember? The son, David's son, who would potentially rule the throne forever, is now getting the kingdom ripped away from him. I will tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. However, I will not do it during your lifetime because of your father David. I will tear it out of your son's hand. Yet I will not tear the entire kingdom away from him. I will give one tribe to your son because of my servant David and because of Jerusalem that I chose. Judgment would come down. But even amidst that judgment, you hear God being a generous God, don't you? The God we meet here is is just, yes, but he always wants to bless. He always wants to fulfill his promises. He's not some tyrant. He's acting for your good and for my good and for the good of his plans and purposes and kingdom. But from this point on, like our kids' talk showed, Israel just get worse and worse and worse. Uh, you, you see a good point. There's a slide on the, on the screen uh, that shows you that up until this point, they'd been kind of going well up until the point of David. But then look what happens next. The two kingdoms divide. Do you see it? Now there's something in your outline. Ah, really? Okay, there's a picture in your outline. Oddly not there. Uh, you can see, so on your outline, it's on, on just next to your notes, you'll see that the, um, the kingdoms divide. Uh, God's nation that would be ruling forever is now split into two kingdoms. Um, Israel reject God, their, their kings reject God, God's people reject his rule. And from here on, it's just a big downhill for Israel. To the point where in 722 BC, the Assyrians come in and they take over the tribes, the northern tribes, all of them, and they take them off to Assyria. They're out of the land. You're like, what's going on? These are are the promises of God. I thought God always stood by his promises. And then in 597, you see the Babylonians come in and they ransack the southern kingdom. Jerusalem's destroyed in 586 BC. The place, the temple that Solomon built, gone. God's people scattered across the Near East. And from this point on, it's clear. Israel never experienced the blessing of God, not in line with God's promise to David and not in the same way. They would return to Jerusalem. They would try and rebuild the temple to have God's place back in Jerusalem, but it would never be the same. It would never physically return to the same glory of Solomon's temple. They would never get what they had. Have a listen to Ezra a bit further on, one of the prophets who promises something great. A new kingdom, but not a physical one. Listen to what happened. Ezra 3 verse 10. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets. And the Levites, descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their possession to praise the Lord. As King David of Israel had instructed, they sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for his good. Maybe this is great, right? The temple, they're building it again. Um, For his good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites and family leaders who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this house. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. It's just not the same anymore. Not compared to what it used to be. 
But throughout this period, from really from this split onward, the prophets speak of a new kingdom, a, a different kingdom, with a different king, a different type of king. This physical kingdom is on the decline, but the prophets of God speak of this promised kingdom, uh, in line with the promise to Abraham and David, a kingdom that would have no end, and one promised king, an anointed saviour, a messiah, a Christ, would come. And we reach the late 20s AD, and we find a scene of interesting events. There's a Jew being handed over to be punished, put to death. There's Jews from the line of David. His name is Jesus, and the charge they give him was blasphemy, claiming to be God, claiming to be the promised king. John takes us in in the New Testament to this this scene. We see it in John chapter 18, verse 33. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? Pilate, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest handed you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus replies, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origins here. A different kingdom. Something that was in line with what these prophets spoke about, in line with the promises to David. It's funny, later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus, in this one. Through Jesus, an eternal kingdom would be revealed. Life forever, forgiveness of our rebellion against God. Jesus is the perfect Jew. He's the perfect king who, when he's at the top of his game, does the great act and lays his life down counterculturally for you and for me. He didn't sin. He didn't turn his back on God, but he laid his perfect life down so that we could be forgiven. John 18, 33, Pilate says, You are a king then. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this and have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you hear that claim? Where are you at in your life? What are you thinking about the world and about God and about the future and about what matters and about where pleasure comes from? Jesus says this, Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Incredibly arrogant claim. Unless he actually is the God of the universe, the promised king of the Old Testament, the one through whom God would bring blessing to the whole earth, the place where God's people could meet with God. Where are you at in regard to Jesus? What is your view on him? How much does he command your life and set the rules to go forward? Pilate's comment, what is truth? He does exactly what we do. I think I can find truth somewhere else, outside of him, for myself, outside of God. A few chapters before this, Jesus had said these words, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except 
through me. This is God's king. Do you see him? No matter where you are in life, no matter how happy you are or how hard life has been, have you seen the truth of who Jesus is? Have you come to him? Throughout the Old Testament, king after king rejected God, Jew after Jew, human after human. We all turn our backs on this God. All of us have treated him as someone other than the ruler of our lives. Except for Jesus. The one who was a descendant of David. How should we respond to this king? Will you cover up like Pilate? Or will you confess and come to him and say, you are my king? So there's something different about David. Despite his rebellion against God, despite what he did with Bathsheba and to Uriah, there's something that made him stand out above the rest, something that made him very different to his son Solomon and the kings that came afterwards. When I read that quote to you about Solomon from 1 Kings 11, I, I took some words out. I want to read it to you again and just show you something. Look at this, 1 Kings 11 verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives seduced him to follow other gods. He was not completely devoted to Yahweh, his God, as his father David had been. Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians and Milcom, the detestable idols of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight and unlike his father David, he did not completely follow Yahweh. What has gone on here? David completely following Yahweh? Have they got their facts wrong? What went on with David? Why is there something different about David? How can one king say that David completely followed Yahweh? I'll tell you why. Because following God was always about trusting that God would keep his promises. That God would win the battles. That God would make you one of his people. The difference with David is that he wasn't perfect, but he ran back to God. The cover-up was not the end. He got confronted by God through Nathan the prophet, and he went back to God. He confessed his sin. He trusted that God would deal with who he was and put his life in his hands, not knowing that it would be through his son Jesus who would pay the price for him that he could stand clean before God. He wasn't perfect, and we aren't called to be perfect. We're called to trust the one who is perfect, God and his son Jesus. I want to show you the inside world of David that he's recorded for us in Psalm 51 and see what happened after this moment. Now, the start of the psalm says this. It's on the screen. For the choir director, uh, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. Uh, Sometimes people think those little bits are just headings in your Bible. They're not. Uh, They're in the Hebrew. Uh, And so here we've got an introduction to the psalm. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. You want to know what went on in the, in the mind of David? Listen to this. You want to know how to respond rightly when we, we fail? Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You are so right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David doesn't cover up a thing. He says, you know the reality, God. I don't treat you as I should. 
I've been sinful from birth. I've always been trying to live my way without you. It just sounds like me, although I don't want to let it out. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. He comes to the God who promises life and says, save me, forgive me, deal with the reality of what I've done. I am so sorry. Verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. He has confidence in the God who saves, in the God who keeps his promises throughout history, in the God who, despite our rebellion and wickedness, we can come back to And the God that offers us forgiveness. What a wonderful God. And this last little verse, 13. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Friends, right now, David is teaching you the Lord's ways. And he's calling us, sinners, to return to the God who made us and loved us. He's calling us to stop running away and covering up the reality that everyone around you knows, that God knows we are not perfect. We have rejected the one who made us. We ignore him and live without him. But that one has offered you his own son, David's son, Jesus, who has died in your place. The right response to David and the right response to God is to recognize we we don't have it all together, but to run to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. To confess, we don't have it all together, but Jesus did. If we were to come before God right now, the only reason he should let us in is because Jesus has paid the price and we trust in him. Jesus died in our place. When he was at the top of his game, he did not deviate. Not my will, he said, but your will. And at that moment took the penalty for the sins of the whole world on his shoulders. Stop running from God. Stop thinking we can cover over our lives and run a life that is better than what God has set for us, that has a better future than eternity, than right relationship with Him and His people. Come and confess what everyone else already knows. We haven't treated God as we should. Come and confess that we need God's forgiveness. Come and recognize the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. That the only way to the Father and the only way to experience the blessings of that son of David who would rule forever is to come to the true king. Why don't you do that with me now? Why don't we stand, we'll stay seated. Why don't we say together the words that David said to God? Recognizing our sinfulness. Asking God to confess us. Sorry, asking God to forgive us as we confess our sins to Him. I've changed the words a bit to point to the fulfillment of what David said. But won't you say this together uh, with me on the screen? 
Ah, we're not going to say it together. Well, let's just, I'll pray and you can say amen. There you go. That's how you make my prayer your prayer. Let's pray.